0: Luke chapter number 15. I've preached two messages from this text so far this year on purpose. We challenged our church folk to try to reach one person with the gospel this year. And I vowed to the Lord that I was going to preach the three stories found in Luke 15 that is all about reaching your one. One sheep out of a hundred, one coin out of ten. One son out of two. So this is the third installment of that. I talked about the God of the lost sheep, talked about the God of the lost coin, and today is the God of the lost son. I want you to look at verses 1 and 2 that set the context for our story today. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners... And eateth with them. Here's the setting. Jesus is minding his own business, eating dinner when a group of no good for nothings draw near to him. At least that's how they were thought of in their community. I'm talking about the publicans who were also the tax collectors of the day. They were hated by the common person. I'm talking about the sinners mentioned in verse 1. That word sinners is a nickname ...signifying their lifestyle. They didn't sin just one time. They weren't just sinners on the weekend. They lived a lifestyle of sin. They were sketchy people. Luke tells us that these publicans and sinners... ...drew near to hear Jesus. Apparently, Jesus portrayed an attitude. He spoke words of grace... ...that was appealing to these publicans and sinners. But they weren't the only ones nearby... There's another group called the scribes and the Pharisees and they happened to be standing at a distance observing what was going on. That was typically the location of the religious hypocritical leaders of the day. They were close enough to Jesus to know what he was up to, but they were far enough away to feel comfortable criticizing him. And that is the posture of many Christians in the church today. Close enough to the church to know what's going on at Fellowship Baptist Church, but you stay far enough away to be able to criticize it. That's a Pharisee. It says the religious leaders murmured. That word murmured means they mumbled or complained under their breath. And here's what they said quietly enough so that no one could hear, this man receiveth sinners and eateth with. What are they saying? Saying this man eateth with them. He lets them at his table. He sits at their table. He's in their living room. He receives them. He welcomes them. He accepts them. They thought in their heart, this is not okay. This is a disgrace. These people are supposed to be rejected, not received. They're supposed to be enemies, not friends. They're supposed to be ignored, not fed. They're supposed to be condemned and criticized, not cared for. They thought they were murmuring quiet enough where no one could hear Him. Little did they know that Jesus was God. And Jesus not only is able to discern the words we say out loud, but the things we say under our breath. And so He responds to the murmuring religious rulers. He knows their heart. And so He chooses to respond to their complaint by telling three short stories first about a shepherd and a lost sheep. The second about a woman and a lost coin. The third about a father and a lost son. These three stories all make the same point. And it's this. Lost people matter to God. In this sense, these parables, they stand together. In fact, they all have the same outline if you study it. Point number one, something was lost. Point number two, then it was found. Point number three, when it was found, everyone celebrated. That's the outline of all three stories. But though these stories stand together, they also stand alone. Though they have a lot in common, there are some unique nuances to each story, and you need to pay attention to these. For instance, they all have a different main character. In the first, it's the shepherd. In the second, it's a woman. In the third, it's the father. In each parable, something different is lost. You've got the sheep, you've got the silver, and you've got the sun. In each parable, the lost thing has a different proportional value. You've got the sheep, it's one of a hundred. You've got the coin, it's one of ten. You've got the sun, it's one of two. In each parable, the lost thing gets lost in a different place. Sheep gets lost in the wilderness, the coin gets lost in the house, the sun gets lost in the far country. In the parable, the lost thing, in each parable, the lost thing has a different nature. The sheep is a dumb and defenseless animal. The coin is an inanimate object. The son is a free moral agent. In each parable, the lost thing gets lost for a different reason. The sheep gets lost because of its carelessness. The coin gets lost because of the woman's negligence. The son gets lost because of his own rebellion. In each parable, the main character responds in a different way. The shepherd responds with determination, leaving the 99 to find the one until he finds it. The woman responds with throwing, sweeping through the house until she finds the one lost coin. The father responds with patience, waiting for his son until he comes home. You see, the parables are united and unique at the same time. They all have the same address, but they take different streets to get there. And this is an important preface to the third parable. Here's why because we get to the most popular story out of the three, the longest story out of the three, the more dramatic story out of the three, and we forget its symmetry to the first two stories. We can't forget that in the third story, though longer, though more popular, though more dramatic, is making the same exact point that the last two shorter stories have made lost. People matter to God. So Jesus uses a third story. It stands united, but it stands unique to show how a lovesick father responds to a wayward, rebellious, lost son. For the record, this story is about the father. This story is not about the son. It's not wrong to preach messages about the prodigal son. I've preached two. It's a parable. We have the liberty to do that. But if we want to know what its truest sense is, if we want to get Jesus' heartbeat behind telling this story, we've got to understand that the main character, according to verse 11, is the father. It says a certain man had two sons. That certain man is the father, and he is the star of the show. The father in this story is meant to give us the heartbeat of God towards the lost. In other words, Jesus is saying this, As the father loves the son, you love the lost. So we examine his love today. Three features of the father's love towards his lost son. Number one, the father's love toward his lost son was incredibly vulnerable. It was incredibly vulnerable. Look at verse 12. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. Don't miss the absurdity in this request. The boy basically says to his father, I can't live under your rules anymore. I want to go out and be on my own. I don't want your fingertip on me anymore. I want to be my own man. But, Dad, do you mind financing that for me? That's absurd. He's not just asking his father to finance his independence. He's specifically asking for the share of the inheritance that was his upon his father's death. That would have been a third of his father's wealth and property and possessions. The significance of this is not that the son is just asking for his daddy's money. He's asking for his daddy's life. In essence, he's saying to his father, Dad, as far as I'm concerned, you can drop dead right now. I'm tired of waiting on the inheritance and I'm tired of waiting on you to die. This is absurd. But the father's response is just as absurd. I'll tell you how my father would have responded. The story would have been much shorter. I would have got slapped on the back of the head, told to go to my room. The end. But the text says, and he divided, that's the father, divided into them his living. He chooses to become legally dead to his son. Why? For what? Well, verse 13. And not many days after the young son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous or reckless living. The father granted his son this request just so the son could go out and waste it all. The text says he gathered, the son gathered it all together. He put all his Nikes and all his Xbox games and gathered as many candy bars as he could and shoved them in a backpack. And he went to the far country and he wasted all the inheritance money with reckless living. Now we could try and predict all that he spent his money on, but that's not the point. The point is where he went with the money. He went to the far country. Well, Where's that? You won't find the far country on a Bible atlas. Because the issue's not geography. The issue with the far country was where the daddy was not. He took his dad's money and went as far away from his dad as he could possibly get. Why did he do that? Well, I'll tell you why the son did it. He was young. He was selfish. He was rebellious, and I'll say it, he was stupid. But why did the father do it? brother? say, why did the father grant the son's ridiculous request? I submit to you that love made the father grant this request. You're, You're thinking love. That's not love. That's enablement. It's irresponsible to give everything your kids ask for. That's not right. Overindulging them is irresponsible parenting. And I agree with you. Giving your child everything they ask for only produces a selfish, entitled, spoiled adult who thinks the world owes them everything. And frankly, I'm sick of doing life with those kind of people. So parents, don't give your kids everything they ask for. But thank goodness this is a fictional story. This isn't a sermon from Jesus to his disciples on how to parent their kids. This is a fictional story, and he uses the father not as an illustration for what to do when your kids ask selfishly for something, but rather to illustrate the love God has towards lost sinners. Here's the point. By granting his son his request, the father made himself very vulnerable. The father allowed himself to be taken advantage of. Why would he do that? Catch this. Because the father wanted a relationship based on love. And in order for there to be a relationship based on love, the other party has to be free to reject your love. That's what God did for you. No, in order to have a relationship with you, He made Himself very vulnerable. God had to humble Himself to a very low position. He had to make Himself so vulnerable, put Himself in a position to be taken advantage of, to be rejected by you and me. He didn't force Himself on you, friend. He gave you the choice. You can accept or reject. That's what he did in his incarnation when he sent Jesus clothed in the flesh. You understand Jesus sweated in our heat. And he shivered in our cold. He humbled himself to walk among sinners. To be mocked by sinners. To be rejected by sinners. To be hated by sinners. To be killed by sinners. To be taken advantage of by sinners. Why? Because he loved you. And that's what love does. It it lets the one being loved take advantage of the lover. It sets themselves up for a possible rejection. 2002. I had some risky love. When I saw a 19-year-old blonde-haired Texan girl playing the piano at the Bible college that I went to, I made myself vulnerable. by opening that door. Asking what her name was. My name's Jenny Lee. Jenny Lee, I like that. Is that all one name or is that two? She said, it's one. God enabled me to flirt with such power. She didn't fall for me instantly, but I remember falling for her. Everything I envisioned marrying, seriously. And she was practicing, I... Got word that she was sound checking in the gym for a chapel service the next day. And so I, I talked to my friend who had a girlfriend who was friends with Jenny. Because that's what vulnerable people do. They get people to do their dirty work. So I said, check and see if she, you know, she's going to be in there. And get your girlfriend to ask her if she's interested at all. To this day, I don't even know how that conversation went, but I think it went pretty well. (laughs) Every one of you guys know what I'm talking about. You made yourself vulnerable. You set yourself up for rejection. Parents, we love our kids. Our our, our kids for our love is vulnerable. We know in the back of our minds we love our kids, but at any moment they could take advantage of that. But we're willing to risk it because we love them. And Jesus is saying... That's my heart for lost people. You need to have a vulnerable, risky love for the lost. So much so you sit at their table. You eat their food. You hang out in the living room. Vulnerability that risks rejection and endures awkwardness when you tell a lost family member your salvation story. That kind of vulnerability. Vulnerability to the ask your lost co-workers if you can pray in the break room before everybody starts eating their lunch. That kind of vulnerability. The kind of vulnerability that knocks on your neighbor's door, gives them a dozen cookies, and invites them to friend day on November 17th. That kind of vulnerability. The vulnerability that forgives the person that intentionally hurts you because you want to show them the love God has for you, even though your forgiveness is making you vulnerable to get hurt again. The kind of vulnerability that follows God's prompting to help somebody that can't help themselves, even though you're risking being taken advantage of. That's what vulnerable love looks like. The father demonstrates it. But notice the second attribute of the father's love. The father's love towards his lost son was faithfully patient. It wasn't just incredibly vulnerable, it was faithfully Patient. I don't want to emphasize what all the boy was doing in the far country. That's another message for another time. I want to emphasize what the father was doing while his boy was in the far country. He was waiting. Dad, you you think about how hard it would be to wait when you knew everything your son was enduring in the far country. Think about how hard it was to do to go to your prayer closet, pray, then sit on your hands. Mamas, you think about that today. Because the remainder of the verses there tell us everything the father was waiting for the prodigal son to stop doing. He waited as his son wasted all his money and became broke. He waited as his son had to endure a famine. The first famine, no doubt, his son endured apart from the farm. The father waited as this young Jewish boy begged for the only job he could find, and that was feeding the pigs. Remember, Jews didn't mess with pigs because the law said they were unclean. The father waited at his son, not only babysat the pigs, but he got so hungry that he had to fight the pigs for their own slop. All the while the father did nothing. He sat at home. Why would a father wait that long? No better yet. How is that loving? Why didn't the father run to the pig stall and rescue his son from that mess? At the very least, why didn't he go around and get a a rescue club together and a group together to go search the woods for his son, to go search the fields for his son? Why didn't he post a a picture of his son on every storefront in the town? Why did he wait? I mean, especially when you consider the first two stories Jesus told. The shepherd left the 99 to go search for the one. The woman stopped her day, stopped everything to sweep through the house until she found the lost coin. But in this story, the father does nothing. Why? It has everything to do with the nature of what was lost. The sheep was a dumb, defenseless animal. The coin was an inanimate object. The son was a free moral agent, which implies this and don't miss it. He chose to leave. So he must choose to come back home. The sheep wouldn't have had the sense to come back to the fold. The coin wouldn't have the capacity to find itself. But the son had a voluntary will. And in order for the son to make that choice, the father had to wait patiently until the son got to a point where he's brought to that decision himself. And in verse 17, it happened. And when he came to himself, what does that mean? It means he came to his senses. It means he woke up. It means he looked at his sleeves and he looked at his hands. And he saw pig slop on him. And it took, the famine didn't work, it took rolling around with the pigs and eating their nastiness and enduring their stench to wake this boy up and bring him to his senses. And the father, watch this, he knew something about his lost son that God wants us to get about the lost sinners in our lives. You have to be patient enough to let lost sinners come to themselves. If you push, if you nag, if you bail out, are you to try to rescue them from the consequences of their sin? You lessen the chances of them coming to a heartfelt decision on their own. Because real repentance begins not when someone lays a guilt trip on us, not when somebody rescues us from our sin because they feel sorry for us, but when we get so sick and tired of being sick and tired that we look up to the only one who can save us. The father knew that if the son was going to really get right then it was going to have to be his own choice thus he waited and we should learn to deal with the lost sinners in our lives the very same way don't nag don't push don't guilt don't shame don't manipulate you listening learn to love Learn to pray. Learn to wait for the open door that only God can give. And when I say wait, I'm not saying to be indifferent. I'm not saying to sit on your hands and never say anything. I'm just saying to let God be God in their life, not you. Because I found that the truest transformation comes, not when I force the transformation, not when I manipulate the transformation, but when I wait long enough and I pray hard enough for that person to come to themselves and let God work the transformation pastor says it this way, if you can't pick the fruit, don't bruise it. Yeah, Let that sink in. If you can't pick the fruit, don't bruise it. I think there are some prodigals that have yet to come home because there are parents that keep bruising them. And there are some grandkids that aren't coming back to the fold because there are some grandparents that keep bruising them. There, there are some people in their life that are trying to be God in their life. They don't have enough faith in God to wait on him. I don't want to be insensitive because I know it's terribly difficult to wait patiently for the people in your life that you love so much that have walked away from God or or that aren't yet saved. You know the return of Christ is imminent. It could happen at any moment. Thus, you want your child, you want your grandchild, you want your coworker, you want your cousin, you want your aunt, you want your uncle, you want your coach, you want your teacher, you want your student, you want them to be right with God. And sometimes, in even the most sincere way, we overstep our boundaries, don't we? We try to be God in their life. You try to be God in your husband's life. Try to be God in your wife's life. Young people, try to be God in your parents' life. All the while you're bruising fruit. You might say, How is it loving then to wait and do nothing? The Father portrays that perhaps the most loving posture we can have is waiting and praying and letting God do what only God can do. The Father's love is incredibly vulnerable, the Father's love is faithfully patient. One more. The father's love towards his son was joyfully restorative. I love this. The boy comes home and he's practicing a speech to negotiate himself back into the house. You won't read it, but that's found in verse 18 or 19. He was humble. He's repentant. He wasn't minimizing, denying, justifying, blame shifting. He just wanted a restored relationship with his father. But look up here. In the meanwhile, his father's been at home waiting. I'm thinking that every day, the dad would walk into his son's room, make sure his bed is made, make sure the room's ready for when he returns. Thinking the father, every morning, he would make the table for breakfast. He would reserve a spot for his son. He'd have his own fork, his own knife, his own plate. Nobody sat in his son's place because his son could come through the door at any moment. I'm thinking that every night before sundown is the daddy would walk out on the front porch and look over the hill and down the road to see if he saw his rebellious son coming back home but to no avail night after night week after week month after month there was an empty place at the table there was an empty bed there was a vacant road until verse 20 and he arose and came to his father. The first step of coming back home is getting up. The son's coming home. I'm imagining it's just about dark outside and the father does what he's done every night for months. He walks out on the front porch and he peers over the hill and down the road and instead of seeing a vacant, lonely, dirt road, he sees a smelly, filthy, dirty looking boy that normal people wouldn't recognize but the daddy knew who it was. It's my boy. Verse 20 says, while he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. I said he had compassion. I said he had compassion. And he ran and he fell on his neck and he kissed him. In the ancient Near East, aged men, wealthy men, Men of statins wouldn't be caught running. It was culturally indecent. But get this, in this picture, we're given the heartbeat of God towards the lost as we learn that God would rather run and lose His decency than lose His children. When He got to His son, He didn't grab His son by the neck. He hugged His neck. He didn't slap his son on the cheek. He kissed his cheek, signifying unconditional love and affection for his boy. Aren't you thankful that when sinners come to Jesus, covered in the filth of their own wickedness, they are still met with an unconditional, forgiving, redeeming love? All the reunion continues. Verse number twenty-one. And the son said to him, "Father, this is the speech of he your heart. I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight." I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe. Put it on and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Tells his son, or his servants rather. Go get my boy the best robe not, not best robe, not just any robe, the best robe. You understand the best robe of the house would be found in the daddy's closet. He says, go get my robe. Get my robe and put it on him. And isn't that how lost sinners are saved? Though they're dirty and they're filthy, God places his robe of righteousness on them. My hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. The father put a ring on his finger, signifying the authority he would have again in the house. He put shoes on his feet. Servants walk barefoot, but sons get shoes. And the father says, I know y'all think I'm crazy going overboard on feeding that calf back there. I've been feeding it extra for this day. Today is D-Day for that cow. Go get it. Go kill it. We're going to throw a party to celebrate and rejoice that this my son was lost, but now he's found. He was dead, but now he's alive. This is joyful restoration. And I want everyone under the sound of my voice to look at me and hear my next words. It doesn't matter why you went to the far country. It doesn't matter how far you went into the far country. It doesn't matter how long you've stayed in the far country. And it doesn't matter what you've been doing in the far country. Your father is waiting on the front porch to welcome you home. It doesn't matter how filthy you are. It doesn't matter how stupid you've been. It doesn't matter how many times you've rejected him up to this point. If you'll come to him today with a humble heart and a contrite spirit and a repentant listen to me, he will meet you with his unconditional love. If you're lost, he'll save your lost soul. If you're wayward, he'll restore you to sweet fellowship again. As much as I want to preach and apply this from the prodigal son's point of view, I must return to Jesus' main intent. He's talking to a bunch of religious, hypocritical leaders that were mad at him for being friends with sinners. And the main purpose Jesus had in telling this story and the other two was to teach them lost people matter to God and they should matter to you as well. No matter who they are, no matter what they've done, and no matter where they've been, lost people matter to God. And the religious leaders were thinking, if you're God, why are you sitting at the table with these sinners. And Jesus tells these stories to get across this point to them. If you know God, why aren't you at the table with us? You understand all three stories culminate in celebration. That's the punchline of the story. If you're God, why are you partying with sinners? Jesus said, if you really know God, why aren't you at the party? Mm. So let me ask you, when is the last time you ran? I said, when's the last time you ran toward a dirty, filthy, wicked, wayward, rebellious sinner? Oh, I know it'll get your your suit dirty, sir. I know, ma'am, it'll mess up your style and the dress you wore to church today. I get that. I know it's not very dignified. I know you own a business and you can't be seen with that person. I get that. I know you got a reputation on the social ladder of the big whopping liberal Kansas to maintain. I get that. I get that. Why don't you take off your suit for a second. And get dirty. Why don't you go wrap your arms around a dirty, filthy... Slop-covered sinner. Don't make them come to you. Run to them. Let me ask you this question. When is the last time you were part of joyfully restoring a sinner back to the Lord? Is that in your resume? Oh, no, the Pharisees had all kinds of things in their resume. They memorized the law, the Torah. You asked them to quote anything from the first four, five, six books of the Bible, boom, they could do it. Chapter and verse. You ask them if they worked on the Sabbath day? Oh, no, no. We we don't even pull an injured man out of the ditch on the Sabbath day. We keep it holy. That's what we do at Fellowship Baptist Church. We wear ties. We're in our Sunday best. We're Baptist. All right, Baptist. When's the last time you got in a ditch with a dirty sinner? All right, Sunday school teacher, when's the last time you went to the kid that was brought on the bus that stunk a little bit, maybe had lice, wouldn't have been to church outside of our three bus routes, and put your arm around them. That's too vulnerable. Exactly. Now, you'll come in here and you'll flock to your family and you'll talk to them. You, you go to the preacher and you talk to him. You'll walk through the line. Hey, brother, how are you doing? But if you had to take out a Bible and show a sinner how to get to heaven, you wouldn't have a clue. Shame on you. No, this is the tone of this passage. Jesus isn't telling these three stories by way of a fairy tale kind of spirit. And they lived happily ever after. He is rebuking hypocritical religious people. Saying, loosen your tie and get dirty with sinners. You don't have to compromise to do it. You don't have to ruin your testimony to do it. You don't have to get drunk with them to do it. You don't have to smoke weed with them to do it. You don't have to listen to their music to do it. You just have to live like Jesus lived. And like the Father, you have to have compassion. A teenager had gone through a rebellious season. It's gotten worse, and it ended up in a huge argument with his parents in which he said things no child should say to their parents. And he stormed out without ever intending to come back. About a week later, he was sorrowful. Sorrowful for his hurtful words, his rebellious ways. and He thought in his head, I don't think they'll let me back. I think I've reached a point of no return. So he wrote a letter of apology And he dropped it off at the front door while his parents were at work. He admitted later that the reason he didn't drop it off to them personally is because he couldn't risk being rejected face to face. The letter said, After school tomorrow, I'm going to pass by. And I would like a sign. If all is forgiven, would you go into my room and get those blue sheets off of my bed and hang them on the line in front of the house? If I see the blue sheets, I'll know I'm welcome to come home. If I don't, I'll pass on and not bother you anymore. Your son. When he rode by the next day, he was shocked by what he saw. Because little did he know that after the parents read this letter, they had stayed up all night long in a labor of love, dyeing not just his sheets, but every sheet in the house in the color blue. He dyed them all. They dyed them all. And they decorated the front of the house with the blue sheets. So as to emphatically say to their rebellious, stupid, selfish son, in spite of what you've done and in spite of where you've been, we love you and forgive you and want you to come back home. God didn't hang any sheets on the line. But he did hang his son on a cross. To say it doesn't matter what you... It doesn't matter where you've been. I love you. I forgive you. I accept you. Oh, come to the altar. Welcome home. And that's the same heart of love we should have towards the lost, rebellious, wayward sinners in our life. And please hear me. That's the same kind of love Fellowship Baptist Church should have. For every sinner, every wayward son and daughter, every punk in our community, every thug, we should have a love for them that if it caused us to have to hang blue sheets on the outside of our building, we would. We would look silly. We would risk, we would spend money, we would be vulnerable, we would be risk taken advantage of. We would do anything short of sin to make it clear we love lost people. Amen. And that's why we have Friend Day on November 17th. Friend's Day is not so you can come by yourself and enjoy extra music. And enjoy a full auditorium. Friend day. Oh, this is deep. is so you can invite your friend. And next week we're going to give you a piece of paper, a little four by six piece of paper to be explained next week. And you're going to be given literally 14 days worth of tasks. Some require sitting at a table with a lost center. Some require praying for a lost sinner. Some require fasting. You know what that means? Baptists don't know what that means. That means going out without a meal. Pleading for God to save a lost sinner. Some of it's going to be to do an act of liberal love and then invite that person to friend day. Some of it's going to be knock on your own neighbor's door. All vulnerable things. You understand, some of us have lived in the same neighborhood for years and have never invited our neighbors because we don't have vulnerable love for the lost. We don't like risk and rejection or awkwardness. Mm. So I want you to come forward today and I want you to begin praying that God would bring lost sinners to this place on that day. But then there's some, perhaps, in the congregation and you're lost. You've heard us talking a lot about these lost sinners and in your heart you almost feel kind of condemned. Like he's talking about me, understand, I, I I didn't come to condemn today. Jesus didn't even come to the world to condemn. He came to save. I want you to understand the love the Father has for you. You're in this service hearing this message on purpose. And if you need to come forward today, I'm going to be waiting right here for you. I'll pair you up if you're a lady with another lady in our church that could take you into a room all by yourself, show you how you can get saved. I'll pair you up with another seasoned man of our church that could take you into a room and show you how to get saved if you're a man. We won't force you. We won't embarrass you. You'll never have to say anything in front of the church, but you will have to get out of your seat and come. By the way, the prodigal son had to get out of the, the pig slop. He had to rise. And go back home. And if you come back, if you make the first step out, I'm telling you, God will meet you. You draw nigh to him, he'll draw nigh to you. Will you get saved today? Will you quit playing a spiritual game today? Maybe there's some in here and you're saved, but you're wayward. You've been rolling around with the pigs for weeks. And months. You find yourself here at church because you're just trying to get a new start. Life has got so rough for you that you're desperate for just a little bit of change, a little bit of hope, a little bit of joy in your life again, like you used to know. Understand the Father will welcome you home, but you got to get out of the pig slop and you got to get to the altar today. You need to grab somebody you know loves you and say, would you come pray with me today? I want to come back home to the Father. Some of you have a prodigal in your family. And you haven't left God, but they have. And your heart this whole time in your mind's eye, you've been thinking of that person in your family, and your heart is broken today. Because you think I would do anything. And so instead of manipulating, instead of scheming, instead of guilting, maybe you need to restart the, the pattern of prayer for them again. Say, i come to the altar and pray for them. It's the most loving posture you could have today. And then there's another group in here and I'll call you the Pharisee. How do you know a Pharisee's in here? Because a Pharisee's in every church. You're close enough to Fellowship Baptist Church to know what's going on. You're far enough away to feel comfortable criticizing what's going on. It's easy to make you mad. You can't remember the last time you told someone about Jesus. When you come to church, you're a customer. You're a spectator, not a participant. You're in and out of ministries. You're faithful for two months and then you drop off. You come and you want to be blessed. Let everybody else give in the offering plate, not you. Let everybody else serve my kids, but I won't serve theirs. I ain't getting dirty. I'm letting my calendar get messy. You're not messing with my lifestyle. Well, listen, God came to wreck your lifestyle. So I'm asking you, I'm asking you to come to the altar and say, God, I repent. I repent of that hypocritical, pharisaical attitude today. Give me the heart of the Father. Give me the heart of the shepherd. Give me the heart of the woman sweeping through her house looking for that coin. May God's word be praised and practiced today as it was preached. Stand to your feet, every head bowed